Hello, and welcome to the Indexical Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Hying. Today's episode features a lively conversation with The Powers, a multimedia band made up of Emily Pellstring, Catherine Klein, and Jessica Mensch. Since we had this conversation over the internet, some of the liveliness gets lost in translation. However, you should be able to get a sense of The Powers' goofy sense of humor, sharp intelligence, and their special connection. We talked a great deal about their working method, which centers around the creation of a feminist cosmology inspired by such disparate sources as Greek mythology, campy 1980s horror films, and the scholarly work of Donna Haraway. Throughout the episode, you'll hear excerpts from the Powers' performance of Sistership TV in Santa Cruz on November 16, 2019. Additionally, the Powers graciously shared an unfinished, unreleased track for their upcoming album, so you'll hear their new track, Bunny, in the middle of the episode. If you have thoughts or questions about this episode or the Index School podcast in general, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Our handle is at an index of music. I'm also available via email at madison at Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy. kick it off um could each of you introduce yourselves and maybe say where you're you're talking from Catherine do you want to start because you're on the top I'm on am I on the top sure <laughs> oh, <no>. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Vic- <laughs> I'm it's rearranged for me I live in Victoria BC so I'm up the coast from you and yeah I'm here with a garden suite apartment biding my time during this isolation and what, what do you do, Catherine? I work as a psychotherapist, and I'm also in the middle of writing a dissertation, or possibly closer to the beginning of the middle of writing a dissertation, which is a very broadly interdisciplinary project bringing psychoanalysis together with uh, ecological humanities, is sort of the broad version of the project. And at the moment, I'm looking at channeling and mediumship as a sort of alternative to a psychoanalytic model of uh, mental life and relationship. I'll go next, I guess. Um, my name is Emily Palstring. I'm talking to you from Napanee, Ontario, which is a very tiny town of 15,000 people in, um, yeah, rural Ontario. I teach at Queen's University in the Department of Film and Media. And um, I cover areas like media and performance. Um, I'm going to be teaching animation, um, digital media, uh, video, um, stuff like that. That kind of content. And I'm a mostly um, I'm a I have an art practice that involves video sculpture and animation. And uh, yeah, so I'm, I make experimental short films and. That's outside of what I do with the powers and inflatable deities, which is a collaboration with Jess. So that's me in a nutshell. Um, my name is Jessica Mench, and I'm 
coming to you from Montreal, Quebec in Canada. And um, I've relocated here temporarily um, because of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, for the most part, I'm in New York, although my partner and Kat are here in Montreal. Um, but I work in the film and TV industry down there uh, as a scenic painter, painting sets and backdrops and scenery. Um, and I'm also an artist. Uh, I'm a painter and installation and video artist. Um, and I just graduated from Hunter College with my MFA. Uh, and let's see, I, you know, like Emily mentioned, we have a collaborative project with her called Inflatable Deities. And then I work collaboratively uh, with As the Powers. That's a good segue to my next question, which is if you all could describe what the powers is the powers is basically a band but it's like a band plus <laughs> a band plus <laughs> yeah it kind of yeah it's like a band that got out of control you know one thing led to another and we just couldn't help ourselves from turning over every stone <laughs> entertaining every whim um <laughs> you know we still i mean we still operate like a band a band is like kind of the basis of the structure of what we intended to be i think so we started we started out jamming and doing little diy tours which we still like to do um but then we got an academic grant to do even more um and so and we had already we had when did we start making videos i guess the first the very first performance was video and sound yeah but it was like it was mostly animations that I had made that we were just using as background visuals and then um, when me and Jess went out to um, BC for the first time I think it was like 2017 we started we started all just like inventing and shooting um, stuff for the music specifically and then you know we did like a live stream show that was our first like live stream event uh, in Pender Island, from Pender Island, BC. Well, so the live stream kind of predates where a lot of the rest of us are trying to figure out what the hell is a live stream and how do we make it cool? Yeah, it was, it was this <laughs> wow. cool series that Catherine was doing called Masterpiece Theater. And the idea was that it's a remote gig. It's a gig, you know, from a place that has a really small population that our friends in the scene aren't gonna be able to go to in real life. So it was a really cool concept. Um, and, you know, we just did that once. And then a few years later, I guess we got this opportunity to do a series of our own. So we decided to make a, a variety TV show and bring our friends in. And um, we, we did a lecture, you know. <laughs> yeah, so we kind of snowballed into other forms. And I think that, like, also um, another reason why kind of live stream TV really appealed to us was because of its sort of like theatrical kind of public access B quality yeah. <laughs> televisual sort of uh, um, format that was just really accessible to us and kind of dovetailed with the kind of performative aspect of our band. Um, 
Maybe just to go back a little, so how did you all meet and start working together? Emily and I started collaborating, what year was that, Emily? It was 2014. 2014. We gathered together in Emily's basement studio at the time, which was in Montreal. Uh, And I think that was our first time improvising and collaborating. And I was... when the shape came out. That's when the shape emerged. (laughs) We have a whole cosmology and a whole myth to describe the beginning of the powers. Can you maybe tell us the creation myth? Yeah, I think Emily actually recounts it quite well. So maybe I'll, I'll give it over to Emily. Well, I mean, it's it's basically because we wrote it down. But I, actually, my you know what? My brain feels like an actual balloon right now because I'm on such a high dosage of um, allergy medication. So I'm, not sure. I'm not sure I can actually recall the myth, but I'll see if I go into a fugue state and it emerges from deep within my subconscious. Um, yeah, so it was... What happened was I was playing with video feedback, um, which is, you know, a a camera kind of seeing its own image. And I had run that through a mixer that had these cool wipe shapes, one of which was a diamond. So, um, and I was just kind of manipulating images and Catherine was playing around with these, these kind of new age cassette tapes that she had. And she had one that was Yuri Geller, um, who is a guy who can bend spoons with his mind. Um, and she was running him through a ring modulator, so he sounded really ominous, and this shape, you know, this diamond shape came up on screen. It was just, like, spewing rainbow energy into the, out of the black abyss, and, uh, simultaneously, out of Catherine's machine, Yuri Geller starts talking about power and announces... I have the powers as this thing is like spewing those <laughs> at us. So, you know, obviously both of us you know, realized, we had this realization that this shape was talking directly to us and that we had a, we had a responsibility to bring this shape's message out into the world. And so we did our like evangelist tour um, where we baptized everyone into the sort of ritual of the talking shape um, and dubbed ourselves the powers. And then I, I saw Emily and Catherine perform in New York. I was just totally blown away. And Emily and I had already had this collaborative practice going um, uh, called Inflatable Deities. And... Um, I I was just totally in awe, but then I didn't, you know, I didn't really think about it as something as I that I could participate in until um, I got a Canada Council grant um, for a big project that I returned to Montreal from New York to do, and it was there that Emily was like, "Come jam, let's let's try this out," and it kind of just stuck yeah because you you were around for six months so it was enough time to really sink into it and we did lots of shows that spring and summer I think so we we did a little tour even you know during that period I think so we made all kinds of new jams and Jessica contributed really insane insano vocals (laughs) um yeah (laughs) and you know that was the turn your face around phase 
um, Turn Your Face Around is a, it's a very limited edition cassette that we made out of that period. I'm really mythologizing us here. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It fits in with the whole, whole thing. Um, so yeah, Turn Your Face Around was Jessica's, um, you know, she had a moment on stage uh, where she's wearing this mask and uh, she couldn't see, it was practice, she couldn't see her instruments and, and Catherine suggested that she turn her face around and she meant like move it off <laughs> to the side of her head so that she could look down at her stuff. But Jessica interpreted that as turning it upside down and having an upside down face. Um, so it was based on that misunderstanding that this whole ritual came into that performance where Jessica would start out with her face right side up and that in the middle of the set, as a climactic moment, we would do this kind of laying of the hands thing where I would turn her face upside down and then she would be an upside down face creature for the rest of the show. Um, and then, yeah, we just started doing upside down faces a lot at, you know, summer of 2015, I think is when those came into being. <laughs> it's like looking at the world a different way, you know, turn your face around. It's like, um, it's like see things from another perspective enter into another state for sure but remain intact you know it's kind of like a surrealist mm -hmm. uh, twist I guess it seems like this maybe touches on something that you all have a knack for which is that I think is really actually difficult to do which is simultaneously being able to like be in the moment of a jam or a practice but then also recognize when something really interesting happens or something that's loaded with more meaning than is there on the surface and like being able to latch onto that and then like appropriate that into this growing ever-growing monster of what the powers is. It does feel like an ever-growing monster and it does feel like our process includes this sort of proliferation of playful ideas and sharing that and then elaborating on the symbolism of it, which has resulted in really creating, you know, this sort of, we call it like this cosmology that we're sort of creating, which is, you know, kind of uh, an interest in re-mythologizing or revisiting myths and then doing them over again, but in our own sort of absurdist, surrealist, playful, feminist way, right? Like a kind of rewriting or redoing. But it is both materially and also symbolically so playful and so broad. We talk about having a, an approach that's maximalist. So it's, we're, not, we're not trying to limit ourselves here. <laughs> we really are just following connections and like, that seems fun, that seems interesting, that would be funny to see. That would, you know, sound neat. That's a vision I'd like to see produced. And then we'll go for it. For a long time, I had this idea that I really wanted to see a vision of myself riding a bird. And this became the sort of thing that we would talk about and play with. And then suddenly, one day, I opened my email and Emily and Jess had animated it. They had done it. They had realized it, which is such a delight to work with. Well, you know, we, we have to give credit where credit is due there. I mean, we like went, we flew to the West Coast, brought a huge, heavy green screen with us had Catherine sit on a chair in front of the green screen. As though I were riding a chair. I mean, this was, this was like a big production. We went, we went to great lengths to make this image. And maybe this is the beauty of collaboration, that yeah. when working together, you can help each other realize your dreams. Exactly. Precisely. Because sometimes you don't have the energy or the confidence to do it all yourself because you're always doing everything alone, you know? 
And it's fun. It's fun when someone has an idea and it's, it, it, you know, a lot of these things kind of start with the feeling of a joke, you know, like a lot of our joking that happens is, um, is like evoking images through words and, you know, doing impressions and characters and that kind of thing. And this flying of the bird this, that started that way, it was like Catherine was like flying on Mother Goose or something. I mean, I actually forget the initial. We were talking about swallowing eggs. Like it just kind of. <laughs> it's yeah. hard to follow those chains of association. <laughs> yeah, but it's fun to like make fiction, you know, to feel like you're you're telling a part of a story and, ha- you know, have a strong image to like try to construct. to what you were talking about, this kind of accumulation, I think one thing that's really interesting about the results of the performances and the videos is that then there's just like a enormous detail um, so that like even if you just saw it once or watched the video twice or three times or four times, you'd pick up new details every time. And that leads to this sense of kind of a very complete but ever-growing cosmology. Um, but it also leads to this like really inter- interesting interplay between all these opposites and kind of incongruities um, that just like all sorts of new meanings can arise. And I just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, I mean, tension and incongruity and variety is something I've been thinking about a lot in relation to um, Sistership TV, the TV project specifically. Um, I've been thinking about um, the fantastic kind of, you know, speculative fiction, psychedelia, um, camp, the, the notion of like kind of trashy camp performance a la, you know, John Waters or Pee Wee Herman or something. And what that, what the, how the ethic of variety or the ethic of more possibilities kind of drives some of those aesthetic um, discourses or practices. So, I mean, I, I'm trying to find like where, what the other nodes are in pop culture that where this kind of ethic of variety or the ethic of like possibility. I'm not really sure how to articulate it quite yet, but um, there is something about this, you know, the presentation of a mode, an aesthetic mode where, um, you know, the impossible is possible. I think it's important to have that, um, just to put that out there for those who wish to come along for the ride. Because, you know, so it's, I don't know why, but it's important. Maybe somebody else can say why that's important. But, you know, it feels to me important to do that. It feels like people limit themselves too much in their thinking. And that it's only, it, not only through play, but play is one way that we can try to think of alternatives to the way that we're doing things, which is not always the best way. I'm not saying that our upside down face is actually solving any problems directly, but I think working in the mode of the fantastic and working in the mode of um, maximalism is it's a good almost uh, mental exercise, you know? It's a good just way to stretch brains a little bit. Yeah. Totally. <clears throat> and and it, it doesn't kind of feed into this sort of, um, I guess, uh, straightforward kind of capitalist um, equation of uh, creating, doing, performing an action to come up with a very quantifiable, specific result. Um, so this is like an alternative to that equation, which for us has been really fruitful. And uh, we've discovered multiple meanings in what we More recently, we've been playing a little bit with the, the metaphor of the playpen, sort of to describe like an enclave where we get can get together and work and play and discuss. And But I like the playpen metaphor because it's, I mean, I'm really thinking psychoanalytically here, but when you talk about like bringing tensions together, when you talk about having a place that's safe enough to make a mess and then to be able to really sort of revel in that mess and see what you can build and see what you can take apart. 
feels like a really important uh, and freeing part of our process. Does that make sense? Yeah, PWS was an acronym we just came up with, which is playpen within a shitstorm. <laughs> just to say that it's not like it's not like we're thinking in a utop in utopian terms or something like that. Um, we are recognizing that this playpen exists within a society rife with problems. Um, so the, and we're like aware of that context, you know, for play. Um, it takes on a kind of different significance when you think about that. Yeah. Like I wouldn't say our project is any way in any way like escapist. Um, I feel like that's important to know. follow up with this idea of an ethic of variety because I feel like that's a really interesting way to put something and to me it seems like that operates on a lot of levels like you're talking about that it has to do with this sort of like speculative envisioning of alternate realities or like alternate futures um, in which you know that you can arrive at through play or in which maybe different like social or political or environmental orders are in play. Um, but it, to me, it also kind of operates on just like kind of a pretty surface level of just experiencing what the powers do either through on film or live, um, which is that like kind of by bringing together all of these different influences and opposites and just materials and, and um, things that you're working with that it also to me made it really accessible that you're all really smart women who have like this really kind of erudite approach in one sense where like you're clearly drawing from like pretty sophisticated literature and really sophisticated ways of thinking. Um, but then you're also drawing from things like camp and other, um, other things that I think to me that like melding and just like the, also the visuals and kind of nods to maybe like eighties culture or horror or science fiction or whatever like to me just like on that surface like I it to me it seems like something that kind of anyone could enjoy or appreciate like it, it there is something really accessible there yeah thank you I mean I think we all really value that you know um different levels of appreciate different ways of entering a work I mean 
with visual artwork, Jess and I have been thinking about that for a long time. Like even in our earliest shows that we did together in like 2011 and stuff, we were thinking about, you know, will this appeal to, would this appeal to kids? Would this appeal to our families who are not like in the cognoscenti of, you know, contemporary art, you know, vernacular or whatever? You know, it's, it's a... Right, Let's, yeah. it's like, how does this feel? Like that's always been really important. Yeah, what emotion does this situation evoke? Are these colors pleasing next to each other? And we know we um, we were talking with um, Xander Morrow and Pippi Zornoza at the Dirt Palace in Providence um, last summer when we did like a residency there. And we had a great conversation um, about beauty, the importance of beauty beyond survival. And right now we're look, we're we just dug up some some research, some fun research on the on craft and the pattern and design movement, and thinking about you know it's it valid and important for things to you know look pleasing and for your environment to be beautiful. Um, we want to try to kind of reclaim a little bit of that because it you know with conceptual art and with modernism, a sort of machismo entered the picture where. Um, beauty and design and, you know, crafts were feminized and devalued. Um, so I think we're kind of recently become interested in thinking about those politics. And it does seem to me that maybe while creating this kind of beautiful backdrop, you it does kind of give you a platform to experience something that's more grotesque or weird or or whatever, that it's kind of like, again, maybe creates a playpen space. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, like, I think, you know, just because you have one idea doesn't mean you can't have other ideas. So just because we're interested in a kind of maybe more um, a particular aesthetic, it doesn't mean there's, there's not room for other ideas or, you know, other... I'm just sorry, I'm not, I can't say this very clearly, but it's, again, it's just this kind of, um, uh, we're just trying not to limit ourselves, you know, in the way that these things, you know, in the way that craft was kind of like streamlined as this like purely feminine and sort of like not, not non-essential aspect to like, living or like home decor for example but um yeah some somehow less important or less smart to make um like a blanket pattern or a wallpaper pattern that is sophisticated you know like that's somehow not as important culturally or intelligent or something that that was kind of like the you know the problem anyway sorry yeah, so it's so it's interesting. You're like, well, what, what, where does this object live? Oh, it lives in a home, and what happens in the home? All kinds of things happen in the home, you know. So what are we really talking about here? <laughs> you know, in terms of like a controlled and limited meaning to anything, you know, or purpose. So also. Uh- I'm kind of, I'm going to go on a different tangent, but I'm thinking about beauty and then the grotesque, like holding these two things together, like our, you know, creating an aesthetic world, like a really sort of 
ever proliferating and varied, but also in some ways somewhat consistent aesthetic world because it's all of our visions kind of mashed together. But I'm thinking about like the crones who are the three sort of characters that are that always emerge in our videos or in our live performances and in our mythology as these sort of figures of, you know, that really kind of given a reverent middle finger to the sort of, you know, Western patriarchal ideals of, of women and, and are a reclamation of these feminine sisterly figures who do have these upside-down faces with these long beards, who are kind of like, you know, unnerving <laughs> in a certain way, but also, you know, wield power. And so we're playing with sort of, you know, at least I'm, I'm tripping on this right now, but playing with these, these ideas of, of, you know, how women have been cast in myth, how the feminine figures have been cast in myth, and also, you know, devalued as well in the same way that maybe craft is, or not in the same way, but similar to how craft can be devalued in these sort of patriarchal art discourses. And finding a way to kind of bring them back into the visible, like bring them back into a powerful kind of visual sonic space. It's interesting, that was basically going to be my next question, because it does seem like, yeah, the beauty and the grotesque are kind of explored in the forms of these different kind of archetypal female characters. And it's just interesting that like through these different female characters, you kind of seem to be able to capture this like multiplicity of what the feminine is or could be. Um, and I um, was just kind of curious about, yeah, the obsession with kind of old women and um, just these feminine figures, if you could just talk about that a little. I think it would be interesting to hear Jess talk about Frankie, uh, her, her character. I also want to hear you talk about the hag again. I have something I, meant, I was going to ask you about anyway, but yeah. Jess, Frankie and then hags, go. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just really quickly just say, first of all, like the reclamation of, of these women who get written out of myths so that the hero can go on his journey and, you know, wage conquest and war and all the rest. And he ends up being, you know, um, canonized in some way. And then there's these sort of like sideline characters, like the three wise women. And often, you know, it's really interesting to see all the, the trinities that reoccur in, in these stories, classical stories. But they're often just sort of like a step on the journey for the hero. Like they go to the witches to get some, you know, mysterious information or... They live in a cave. They live in a cave. <laughs> yeah. And they're outside of society. That's always okay. important. Or they're like... They're close to nature. They're close to nature. Like Medusa's sisters, they're ban You know, Medusa ends up being banished and separated from her sisters. So we're like, okay, well, what about those relationships between those three women? What is that trinity? What is the, you know, to kind of highlight and emphasize the relational ties between women. And then also to be like, they're actually far more interesting and they're doing far more interesting things than, than we know. And that's what we get to do. Yeah, they know a lot of stuff. They're weaving destinies. They're predicting the future. They're healing. They're doing all kinds of important things. Yeah. And what about the hag as the fence sitter? I'm interested in this kind of like outside of, you know, this kind of like enclave, castaway, hidden. You, there was some text you read about the, the hag. The hag comes from this notion of the hag Azusa, which I guess is, uh, it means the, the fence. So she was known as the fence sitter. 
which means she would sit on the border between civilization and the wilderness. And, and that sort of liminal space between, you know, being like civilized, being able to show up in your societal civilized role versus kind of being of, you know, the other world, nature, etc. is a really sort of unnerving position for a lot of people for like the witch to be riding this sort of or straddling this border. And we like to play with that a bit, you know, like to be in sort of the domain of art making and the academy and, you know, we're all in school or teaching in schools. And then also so much of our work draws on the kind of the natural world as well as the kind of chaotic or whatever those themes might be. And again, it's like bringing those tensions and that variety together. Yeah, Ruthward, I think, um, Madison, you're referring to the elderly person that that's in our performance yeah okay that um so that's a um so in our performance uh off and videos often there's an elderly character we call frankie and she is based on my grandmother who i knew only in the very uh later stages of her life, so late 80s, early 90s. Um, and I got to know her as an adult. And uh, Frankie's largely based on her, like in terms of her mannerisms, her movements, the way she spoke, the way she speaks. Um, and I think for me, you know, Fra Frankie is personally, uh, she was... She's like one of the few um, elderly people I, I knew intimately at all and since. Um, and uh, I think playing her as a character uh, kind of helps me sort of connect with her on a material level. You know, there's so, there's so the elderly, I mean, not to state the obvious, but growing old and dying, <laughs> something if we're all lucky enough to experience is, is not like an easy road to live and path to follow. And uh, I think kind of embodying her in the ways that I can help me to kind of consciously like bridge that, uh, that generational divide between herself and myself and I don't know it has a it, it kind of has a, a feeling of exercising some kind of um, something that maybe I would normally repress and let's face it we don't really have a very great relationship with our elders and elderly women and at least in the culture that I come from Absolutely. And this is like, you know, Frankie is a joy. She is a delight. When she comes on the scene, it's like underneath my mask, I'm like grinning. It's really hard not to just like gleefully kind of chuckle to yourself when you see her. <laughs> she blows my mind every time with something that she does. Like the like when she she usually lights well we had this um did we bring I think we had a hand instead of a leg on this trip, but we always have a candle on something. And uh, I think someone was holding the, the candle at the end of the show. Frankie comes out. And it's after the point where everything has gone quiet and kind of reverent. And then Frankie, like, 
just interrupts this whole moment to go light her cigarette on the candle. And the timing of it was just so good that time. I think this was in Seattle. Um, it was just so good that time that I like was like shaking, <laughs> like trying not to break character on stage, but she just disregards. She's like basically telling us what you're doing is fucking stupid. It's all, this is bullshit. This does not matter. And I also have my, I have my own agenda here. Isn't it so refreshing <laughs> to see like this old woman who just does not, she like, it's like zero fucks given by Frankie. She's just doing her thing and she is just like, she's done. She's, she's done. She's just driven and she's not, she doesn't care. <laughs> she's not taking it in. She's not, she doesn't feel like she has to perform for any, anyone. She's seen it. Yeah. She, she presents like a really different perspective and it's like yeah. immediate and un uncontested and comes through everything that she does. It's like a demonstration of that alternate way of existing whatever that you know whatever that is at that time for her and maybe that's this way that you're able to kind of hold these moments of like reverence and after this like very serious kind of ritual but then just like break out into this like really humorous just kind of like almost goofy humor goofcore yeah we, we called we said our genre was goofcore for a while <laughs> yeah it's important because it's like, yes, this is happening, but like, don't take any of the, don't take this too seriously. <laughs> you can take it seriously, but don't ever not question it, you know? Right. And that also seems to me to connect to this idea that like through play, that's a really powerful intelligence tool. Like that's a really powerful way to like think through new thoughts. I don't know if that's a very articulate way to put it, but... <laughs> No, I think that's the it. Yeah. So then maybe that gets me to my next question, which is, so the powers came to Santa Cruz as part of this series called Digital Alchemy. And the whole idea was basically just to bring together people that are taking different kind of critical positions on art and technology and maybe how they're connected. And so I wonder if you could just talk about kind of some of the technologies that you're using um, and I think in your case in particular, like how that's kind of at this access, access between like, so technology, nature, culture, and art, it seems like all these things are kind of, uh, meeting at some point and just kind of maybe on just a practical level, what technologies you're actually using, but then also kind of maybe what it, what it all comes together to mean. I'll, I'll start really quickly because um, I don't have too much to yeah, say about my gear. Well, yeah, I could talk. I could talk about that, like the intertwining of the technology and the art and the the symbolism and all the rest. But my my own approach, like on my gear table, are a whole bunch of Korg electrodes. I say a whole bunch. Sometimes three. Sometimes two. <laughs> and could you explain what that is? A Korg electrode. Yes, yeah, like I have a rhythm synthesizer, and I have some samplers. And then I also use tape. I use a lot of sort of you know tape samples run through a Walkman. But I will say that my approach is really like, um, I'm not a gearhead at all. I take, I take what I got and I play with it. And, and yeah, that is what I do. And I kind of like just being able to make something out of uh, secondhand junk. Your sounds are very, sound very electronically mediated though. I mean, it sounds like you like to, the texture that um, these electronic manipulations allow. Absolutely. Yeah. Aesthetically, I, I feel connected to the Electribe. 
Not sponsored, by the way. <laughs> yeah, the Korg, like, three generations of Korg tribes <laughs> waiting for the sponsorship. Yeah, send this to Korg, please. We've got a cu- we have several Korgs on the table. <laughs> Jess, you have a Korg too, right? I do. Um, I have two. Uh, I have a little travel one that we've been using recently. Um, just a, uh, I forget what it's called, but it's just like a little little synthesizer small keyboard but has mini mini log yeah mini log that's it and um yeah you can tell we're totally not gearheads (laughs) okay i'm not either (laughs) it does the job and then some (laughs) so yeah it's got some nice sequencing capabilities and yeah some really nice um arpeggiation that's really yeah it's got a lot of what's nice is it's like it's got a lot of um analog capabilities so you have a fair amount of control over the wave shape and form and uh it's different um and different envelopes to control those those aspects yeah my favorite piece of gear on the table is this um Electroharmonic Super Space Drum original edition that I have. That's from '79 or something, and it is it just it doesn't have a wide range of sounds that it makes. It's like a drum pad that you hit, and you you know it has modulation optional, and you can control the rate and the pitch, the start and end pitch of a the modulation, and that's really all you can do with it. Except sometimes I'll also run it through um, like a delay pedal. Or, um, and I run things through um, two guitar pedals, one delay pedal and one phase modulator. Um, and so you can hear that um, with a lot of the beats and stuff. And then usually what I'll do, because touring with a huge synthesizer is hard, my synthesizer is a, um, a JXP3, um, a Roland from the 80s, and it is large and in charge. It's very heavy. So I usually just sample a bunch of sounds from it onto um, just like a really shitty sampler. Well, not a shitty sampler, but an, an older model um, boss, you know, whatever it's called, SP404. And so I have a, like a huge bank of sounds from the Roland synth in there. And sometimes I'll manipulate those with the, with the pedals, sometimes I won't. Um, but yeah, that's basically, I'm usually just running samples. And then doing vocals and running the vocals through that that uh, that sampler, actually. Because it has, you can do pitch shift with it. We You'll hear that a lot on our vocals, like pitch shifting through that Boss 404, SP404 thing. Yeah. Thank <laughs> you.
How would you describe the sonic palette that you all arrive at together? It's kind of like three. Yeah, we're editing the album right now. So we're kind of coming really face to face with what the sound is like by itself. Just hard because when we jam and perform and make videos, there's always so much going on, like narratively and visually, um, that the sound is one part of it. And it's a driving part, but it is just a part of a whole, it feels like. And now just listening to it as sound is is really strikingly different um, as an experience. So it's definitely something that we are coming, you know, we're facing up, we're facing it right now. Like, what is what does this sound sound like by itself? I don't know how to describe it. I've kind of been immersed in it, but I'm like to hear other people's takes. I mean, I think we all, kind of, we come from, like, we have eclectic, uh, musical backgrounds, but we also come from a scene, which is, you know, where we all met, actually, of um, experimental music, which I want to say electronic experimental music, but in Montreal, where the three of us came together, it's not, you know, it's the, there's a lot of overlap between scenes and styles. Yeah. And so, so it's eclectic. It has, you know, I, I played noise music, I played this sort of stuff before I joined the Powers, but I also really like beats, and I also really like, you know, making uh, atmospheric spaces, and I think all of that comes out between the three of us. And I would say that maybe maybe there's a little bit more of a pop sensibility, but it's quite it's quite uh, warped and strange and collaged. Um, it meanders all over the place. It's like our process in a way. It's got a, it, it's there's, it's broad and it proliferates. <laughs> I guess I could say. Yeah, it's kind of. I feel like it's kind of soundtracky sometimes. Like um, when I first started working with sound, it was through going to film school and learning Pro Tools and making soundtracks for my films, where I would just record a bunch of acoustic instruments and then put them together in software. And so that was the first time I ever like made composition sonic compositions and then I played in rock bands so same scene like I, I met Catherine in, the, in that scene but I was playing a very different style of music it was like psychedelic like doom surf as we used to call it, it was kind of I was a drummer and a screamer and um it was in a couple of like garage bands that played you know three minute songs or like kind of more psychedelic garage and I've always had a soft spot for like all of the like British psych and all this kind of like 60s psychedelic rock and all that kind of stuff um which I don't think really comes through in the powers but just to show that there's like diverse musical in influences floating around yeah and but I also you know I really love um uh, like a wide range of stuff just brings a jazz element I think sometimes that's interesting <laughs> yeah um I definitely enjoy because I, I think actually I use my synthesizer as much as a kind of drum machine as a, a melodic instrument. Um, I kind of try. I think I feel like I sort of mix the two to create these sort of. I think 
my my role in the band is very responsive so it's it's usually like it's additive so I'll, I see what's going on uh, temperature wise with what Emily and Catherine are doing and then I try to like change it up or contribute to it that's that's funny because I feel like I'm doing that too maybe we're all doing that <laughs> So that's maybe a good segue to my next question. And we'll get back to the other broader question that I had later, um, which is it seems like improvisation is a big part of at least the like long-term creative process. But then in like the performances that you do, like how much of that is improvised versus like how much is pretty fixed? It's very, I mean, it's in its, in its early stages, it's always improvised. But then because we have, you know, kind of an elaborate stage show, it really requires us to rehearse to the point where we are very familiar with at what point the transitions will happen and um, when things are going to start and stop, um, our climax. But I, I'd say that within these those those pivotal points, at least for myself, I, I'm always uh, changing things up a little bit. So I don't, I don't know, but that's, I don't, I'm not running on, um, my instrument is more, is amenable to that, working that way. I don't, I don't know if the girl, other girls do feel that or work that way. It's structured and it's structured and I play with the structure. And I think, I don't know if you two would agree, but I feel like even in our live show, like we do structure, like we need to know when to trigger the fog machine. We need to know when the videos are going to be triggered with a segment. It's very when much. When are the changes going to happen? When are the, it's like, feels like theater. Like it's, it is a theater piece, right? But so we have a structure, but of course we're always introducing these other elements because we always invite somebody into our ritual space. We invite the audience into the ritual space. So there's always this sort of, you know, openness to the unexpected and openness to the contributions of others. It's always interesting to see how our volunteer who sometimes holds a leg with a candle on it or, you know, whatever might be happening or might have to wear a cat's mask or it's always interesting to see how they kind of add the, um, what in some ways is quite a formalized ritual, right? That we've really sort of constructed. So yeah, there's structure and same with my machines, like structured programmed, but also, you know, lots of playing with what's happening. Yeah, same. It's like the each within each section, the sections are in order, and within each section, there's room for change. So then maybe let's get back to this art, tech, science, culture, nature access, <laughs> like how that all comes together. Well, here's another metaphor we're playing with these days. <laughs> we really like these figures. Uh, so I don't want to give too much away, but let's just imagine a ball of wicker. Okay. <laughs> Get excited. So just like we're thinking about wicker in part, as we were speaking earlier, like, you know, like craft, the idea of weaving uh, and all the sort of associations that go along with this, you know, the sort of feminization of craft and the devaluation of craft and these sorts of ideas. But also thinking about, you know, we've been looking into the history of wicker and 
and it's like it is a technology like it you know like weaving together something for structure like be it furniture or a home or a basket or a shelter right so thinking about this technology which is both shelter and structure but also you know incorporating uh so much of the non-human world like whether it's you know bamboo or palm or and then later incorporating like the synthetic world when it became popular and in demand then of course they had to manufacture materials that could make yeah wicker so that people could have these on their front porches for you know vacation furniture etc the ultimate the ultimate vacation furniture furniture, (laughs) which is a quote from a history of wicker (laughs) the ultimate (laughs) we're deep into the wicker So, you know, this is just one figure, like we, you know, it might be apparent to somebody who knows her work, but we're all really influenced by the work of Donna Haraway and her colleagues, Karen Barad, etc., where we are thinking about how stories and materials and technologies and the natural all sort of weave together. And we like the wicker because it it's really, you know, the weaving metaphor is really fruitful for us. Entangled. Entanglements, exactly, 100%. Yeah. And it, you know, relates to classical myth, which we play with so much too. Like the the three fates, the three sisters were weavers. They weave fates together. Um, Penelope in uh, the Odyssey is a weaver, right? So, you know, these sorts of ideas are really kind of uh, fun for us to play with. And it also speaks to the way we want to kind of build cosmologies, which are mythological, but they're also really materially, materially grounded, right? In our technology, in our, you know, connections with the non-human world in our videos, me riding a bird, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, like it's a st- also the idea of the structure and the container, like making a container out of entangled threads is kind of an interesting one. I was thinking about Donna Haraway when thinking about like you were saying like creating these cosmologies because what Donna Haraway always talks about these like situated knowledges and um, then Karen Broad talks about how to really understand something you have to like pick the point and then pick it all apart and see everything that it touches and then see everything those things touch so it's kind of infinite in that way and I feel like with all the detail and the kind of accumulation and um, abundance that goes into the powers it's almost like you're creating that context that situation um, for each of these things to exist um, and it becomes more and more complete and so I just thought that was really interesting that you know if you were to take one thing like the mask then it's touching all these other things and it could you know it would just like zoom off into all these webs of meaning and I I didn't want to start out the bat getting too you know (laughs) scholarly about anything but no that that I mean Haraway and Barad are also our playmates right like we we have a reading list we read their work and other people's work that's you know related or tangentially related yeah and in it very much our our project that our uh, research grant project is called sistership of our world making well this is one of our talks world making with the sistership of spectral technologies which really speaks to this idea of we are trying to weave a world or weave another possibility in a really sort of grounded playful situated way also, aside from the material, one of the things we were most interested in, the reason why we, we called our research group the Sistership of Spectral Technologies, was that we were thinking about, um, well, at least Catherine's research has a lot to do with um, also incorporating no- the notion of like the immaterial, so spirits, ghosts, energetic 
entities, um, incorporating those into the practice as well. So, um, you know, aside from the dichotomies that we create and the boundaries that we create between technology and nature, human and animal, we also create boundaries between, you know, the material and the immaterial. And so we're kind of just looking at all of those, um, you know, trying to expand our thinking about all of those uh, boundaries that we've made as a culture. Yeah, again, the hag on the fence is such a great figure because she really sits between material world and material world. She's like the, you know, a quintessential figure for kind of messing, messing with boundaries and boundary play. So maybe just to get, this is also related to, to Donna Haraway and, and just kind of some of the things that you've been talking about through our conversation. Um, and you even mentioned the word is re- reclaim or reclaimative. And I was just curious, maybe as kind of a nice like way to end is what does that mean to you and how can that maybe bring about some kind of healing? And like, is that, is an idea of like healing important to you? That's a really great question. For me, yeah, I work as a psychotherapist, so I'm like, you know, I think a lot about destruction and I think a lot about repair. And I think a lot also about making safe space for people to do this sort of playful, difficult work uh, for the sake of some sort of a better, a better opportunity at a meaningful life, right? Yeah. And I think that is also, I really care about therapy, but I also really care about creative work as offering that space. And it does. I mean, I think for me personally, the working with the powers is, is healing and actually functions that way. Um, you know, it's hard, you know, most feminized folks in the world have encountered some kind of violence at some point. Um, and I don't, I don't think any of us are really an exception to that. And so, you know, you bring this kind of personal pain and trauma into the situation um, of your creative work, inevitably. And I think some of the even specific characters and emotions that have arisen in our set, some of the more difficult ones for me are drawn from that place of, um, of like anger and... Some moments are cathartic, you know, like we used to have like a a song where I would just scream don't at the top of my lungs. And um, it was kind of bone chilling, people would tell me like, you know, that that seemed to come from somewhere real. And it certainly does. It's like you're evoking these serious feelings, you know. Um, Yeah, and I think talking through things like the Medusa myth with the powers has been... uh, you know, really important um, in my own, like, healing process. Uh, you know, we, Medusa is a figure who's made her way into our work quite a lot. Um, who It's a very complex myth uh, that Catherine's done some writing on that, you know, when it's told, it's often told in such a way that, you know, really diminishes Medusa's power. And um, so it's important, and you know, many, you know, many feminist, you know, poets and artists have reclaimed the image of Medusa over and over again because she's such a um, she's such a powerful um, figure, and her tale is so rife with misogyny. Um, anyway, yeah. 
But yeah, working with your friends and screaming with your friends is a great way to heal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that for me, it's just, I mean, similar to Emily, um, you know, it's like this, to have like a functional working relationship that allows for you a, an openness for you to talk about all different aspects of your life. You know, nothing is nothing nothing is not allowed. And that is honestly, I don't I mean, you know, usually these things are really segregated. You know, it's like no, you do your talking in therapy. You do your talking with your family. You don't put, you don't bring this into your work environment. You don't blah, blah, blah. You know, all these things are usually really segregated. So it's pretty mind-blowing to have like a space with people and these two and who are also women, you know, that's not a small thing. Like that's actually a really healing thing. Um for me personally, uh, it's, it's, you know, where everything is allowed and welcome is incredible. Yeah. We've, we've all, I mean, crying is allowed at band practice, (laughs) putting, getting snot in each other's hair is allowed. (laughs) Yeah. But also just like, yeah, the whole gamut of emotions and I think we can all say there have been a few times when it's just been like so fun and to never underestimate, you know, there's the catharsis, there's the bringing our trauma and our gendered experiences into a conversation that's, you know, held well. And then it's also just to have a space where laughter and the sort of, you know, the marvel of being able to just do this, like to put on our costume and act like we act you know should be illegal it should be illegal (laughs) i know it is such a joy to be able just to be absurd with your friends right so it's a full spectrum like the sistership of spectral technologies we even emotionally the spectrum is welcome right the dark and the light it's a playpen that can hold all of it